Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so this is the viral edition of Critical Q&A as we are progressing in our shut-in, lockdown, whatever your local situation is right now. Uh, as we're dealing with this global pandemic crisis and uh, nah, rah, rah, rah. so let's go ahead and not talk about that for a little bit and talk about some other things. I've got some great questions this week, but I wanted to encourage everybody to please first check out uh, this week's Three Apostates Sensibly Speaking podcast. I was joined by Jonathan Streeter and Lloyd Evans who are a former Mormon and a former JW, uh, respectively, and we had a grand old time talking about our former groups and their response to this crisis and various other things that came up. It was a lot of fun. Had a great time. So I encourage you guys to check that out. And this next week, I'm, um, I'm getting some more uh, podcasts recorded, and uh, I've got some great stuff already in the pipeline. I'm, I'm going to put out another talk with uh, John Atack this week, and... Also, I'm hoping maybe to do a live stream or two during the week since, you know, if some of us have a little bit more time on our hands, I'm actually not one of those people. I've been working from home this whole time, but, um, but I want to get more content to you guys uh, and help you out during this time. <laughs> okay, so that all being said, I also wanted to put a little plug in for uh, Critical Merchandise. It is available for sale at the Critical Merchandise link below. Uh, don't plug that nearly enough. And if you are looking for uh, reading or listening content during this time and you have not yet seen or heard my book, it is Scientology A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. And I would be pretty remiss if, you, if I didn't tell you about it at least, if you didn't know that that book is there. And it is all about what Scientology is really all about. It's a critical analysis of the subject. It is not my memoir. So uh, that all being said, let's get on with your questions. Nick C. I just heard that Mark Bunker had won a seat on Clearwater's city council. For the benefit of relatively new Scientology watchers, Mark is a longtime Scientology critic whose engagement with Scientology goes back at least 20 years. How do you think this makes Scientology leadership feel, especially since both Aaron Smith-Levitt and Mike Rinder were involved in Mark's campaign? Thanks for the question, Nick. I am actually looking forward to getting Mark Bunker back onto my Sensibly Speaking podcast. If you did not see, I will uh, throw a link below to the podcast I did with Mark when he was ramping up for his election. It was, a, it was an interesting podcast, and we will be doing a follow-up. He's already agreed to do that. We just need to get it scheduled. I think that they are probably pretty mad that Mark Bunker is on Clearwater City Council. There is no world in which that's a good thing for the Church of Scientology. So there's no way they're going to be happy about that. And it, I think they really did try their hardest to keep him from getting that city council seat amongst all the other things that they do. And it's kind of telling how little of an effect they had in in bringing him down or taking away from his campaign or smearing him or, you know, now I also don't have all the details of what occurred during the campaign. So that's what I'm going to rely on Mark to tell us about when I get him on the podcast. But I can say in general terms that there is no question that 
somewhere in a file cabinet, a folder, on somebody's desk is a program, a series of steps and targets to get done that has Mark Bunker's name on it. And that program is an effort to ruin him utterly as per Scientology policy. It's not a joke. They actually follow that policy and they really do want to do that. They didn't get him in the election and he got on the city council and now they're going to have a thorn in their side because of that. And they're going to have to deal with that. They were not able to prevent him. Uh, in fact, I understand he won by a pretty, you know, a pretty good number. So, um, so you're going to see, I mean, my, I, we'll probably talk about this in podcast, but I'm, I'm thinking you're going to see or you're going to hear about attempts to infiltrate his, his uh, life or his, the, the, count, the city council in some fashion more than whatever Scientology has already done. We know from the history of what Scientology did in Clearwater already how their playbook operates. And infiltration is part of their playbook. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. They infiltrated newspapers, government offices in Clearwater when they first moved there in the 70s. And uh, this was a, a very planned campaign to take over the levers of power and influence of that town so that they would have unimpeded progress to build, buy, build more, you know, create a Scientology city. If there has ever been a place in the entire world where Scientology had its eye on the prize of a Scientology city, it's Clearwater. They talked about Portland actually being the first Scientology city, and that was a motto that Hubbard gave to Portland quite some time ago, but really, for all practical purposes, it's Clearwater. So I'm, so they don't want somebody on the city council messing with them. And Mark Bunker is somebody who really understands how Scientology works at a very deep core level. He really gets it. No other person who's been on the city council has actually really understood it. Or if they did, they didn't know what to do about it, or they didn't, or they they felt powerless against it, or for whatever reason, there was very little pushback against Scientology. There's been a lot of efforts to get along, try to appease them, try to work with them, but you know, it's with Scientology, and and especially under David Miscavige's rule now, and it's pretty much been under his rule for for most of this time that they've been dealing with Scientology and Clearwater. Um, his, his, it's his way or the highway. I mean, he's not interested in compromise. He will, he's offered projects to the city. He's offered renderings to the city. He's offered to throw money at the city to help with their downtown restoration projects. But it's always been contingent on, well, this is how we want things to be. And if you do it the way we want you to do it, then you get all these, you know, bennies. But if you don't do it the way we want it, then everything's withdrawn and you are now our mortal enemy. And that's, you know, how Scientology has sort of played back and forth with Clearwater. It's not been any kind of, as I understand it, it's not been any kind of a cooperative effort or, you know, hey, let's, you know, have some give and take or anything. It hasn't been like that. And, of course, you know, we also know... <laughs> I mean, let's not forget, Scientology is not just another group. You know, Scientology is a destructive cult. So, you know, they're not interested in playing, getting along with the society at large. In fact, I'll make this point now, since it fits in with this, and I made this during the podcast that we did um, this week, that this whole global crisis is really highlighting something that you don't normally see 
with the Church of Scientology. Their, their PR and their efforts at public imagery all, all are about cooperative efforts, interfaith councils, you know, kind of trying to get along to, to you know, this, this kind of thing. But that's not really how they are, and that's not how they talk when, the when behind closed doors, and that's not what their real attitude is. The Sea Org's attitude, Scientologists in general's attitude towards the rest of the world, people who are not Scientologists, can be summed up in one word, and that word is contempt. They hold the rest of the world in contempt. And I, I wish I'd thought to, to, to bring this up before in, you know, in all the, the, the talk that I've done about this, but it's, it really is highlighted now where it's never been so obvious to see the way they're flaunting the social distancing rules, the way they're still encouraging people to come in for social gatherings and stuff. So anyway, I don't want to get on a big tangent about that. just wanted to comment on it because that is how Clearwater has been dealt with all these years, is from a contemptuous attitude. They have to put up with city regulations. They have to put up with these restrictions and, and, and stuff. And, and they're, not, they're not interested in that. They, it's, they're very interested in having things their way, period. And they spend a lot of money to make that happen. And they've bought a lot of influence in that town. So the, the city council all by itself is not going to be able to deal with the Scientology threat all on its own. Mark Bunker is not all by himself going to be able to now single-handedly, you know, take down Scientology and Clearwater. It's not going to work that way at all. He's just somebody who's finally a point of actual resistance to what their schemes and plans are versus somebody who's sort of passive-aggressively watching it happen and feeling powerless of what to do, which is, I think, how most of their city council folks have been over all these years. Anyway, that's kind of the most intelligent things I can say about that, so I think I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Becky in Washington. How can we learn and harness the parts of Scientology that seem to actually work? For example, recently I watched a video of yours in which a woman said that as a girl, her panic attacks were immediately cured after just one session. Or in Ron Miscavige's book, if I remember correctly, he said that David's asthma was quickly cured with Dianetics. Also, how did you meet your wife? You guys are very cute together, and I bet there's a good story there. Okay, well, uh, okay. So, first question first. Um, the, the, I want to stress something here about, like, you mentioned this girl's panic attacks or David Miscavige's asthma. Let's be clear about something. David Miscavige still suffers from asthma, according to former insiders who have, who have spoken on this, like Mark Headley. Uh, yeah, he still got asthma. It did not cure anything. Um, and in terms of, you know, I looked up panic attacks, I looked up asthma. There is no cure for asthma, by the way. Asthma is something you manage. It's not something you cure. And if it's psychosomatic in nature, then I suppose it could surrender to some sort of, um, you know, therapeutic approach. But, um, but that's not really what Dianetics is. Dianetics is hypnotism. At, at its base level, if you're going to look at what is it that makes Dianetics do what it does, it's putting somebody into a trance, it's running them back through, you know, past incidents. It's got some similarity, I guess, in a way to EMDR, some similarity in ways to CBT. Like, you, these things on a Venn diagram might cross in certain ways in terms of what it's doing up here, even if the methodologies are slightly different. 
um, going back in your past and going back over traumatic episodes can be clarifying in some ways, even if you're in a trance state while you're doing it. So I'm not saying that there's zero therapeutic benefit to it. it I've always said it has a limited amount of benefit in a limited number of cases. What Dianetics and Scientology claim in the books, what Hubbard claimed in the books of this, is that it's universally applicable and universally workable, and everybody will benefit from it, and that is just patently not true at all. It's a very small percentage of people who actually positively respond to those techniques. And even if you positively respond, that doesn't mean you're actually cured of physical ailments that have a physical source. And in the case of David Miscavige's asthma, that's the case. So he might have had some Dianetics auditing and felt better, might have entered a euphoric state, might have felt temporarily symptom-free, because a lot of symptomology, well, in fact, I mean, really, all pain, all symptoms that you experience, you're experiencing up here. <laughs> it's a created, it, it, you know, simu it's, it's a... Uh, it's a created sensation in your brain, right? So you can psychologically recreate that or you can physically recreate that. And if you are able to enter a euphoric state about certain topics or areas for periods of time, euphoria is a, not a permanent state, then you can sort of release those you know, psychologically caused symptoms, but you're not going to release the physically caused symptoms. If I come up to you in your euphoric state after your Dianetic session and hit you on the toe with a hammer, you're going to hurt, you know. But if you were experiencing some sort of chronic pain that didn't have a physical source and you entered a euphoric state, then you might not re-experience those kind of chronic pains for a while. And that's not a cure. That's a sort of a release from it for a while. It's kind of gone for a little while, but it's going to probably come back. It might not. You might have actually addressed through accident some kind of part of the trauma that actually pops it. But like I said, this is a very rare circumstance among a very limited percentage of the population of people who have received this kind of counseling. So... You know, so as far as, uh, so I wanted to kind of lay that bare so that we're clear how I'm approaching quote-unquote cures or relief of symptoms in a Dianetics or Scientology setting, okay? I think, I think it's really just a temporary state of affairs or you, it's a placebo effect. Um, okay, so then you ask, well, what, how do we harness the power of that? Well, there is such a thing as hypnotherapy. I mean, you know, I wouldn't particularly recommend going and getting it, but at least you're at least you're going to be uh, at least you know that there's informed consent and you understand exactly what the process is when you're going in, and you're not they're not telling you that they're addressing your reactive mind, which is just some construct L. Ron Hubbard literally made up out of whole cloth, you know, and. Uh, they're not telling you, they're not preaching to you that they're going to cure all of your psychosomatic illnesses and you're never going to suffer from colds again or anything because of hypnosis. I mean, they're very guarded about what kind of results you're going to get from it with good reason. They understand that it's not a cure-all and it's not a panacea for everything, 
but it is an approximation of what you would get in a Dianetics session if they were being really honest about it. So, you could go avail yourself of that, I suppose. What you, um, you know, the, the thing about Dianetics and Scientology is over the years, L. Ron Hubbard threw a hodgepodge of all kinds of things together into this cauldron and sort of stirred it all up and then through sprinkled his own cosmology all over it. And that's really what Dianetics and Scientology are. It's not a unified field of, you know, of, of evolved principles that were discovered step by step. That's, that's not how this was put together at all. So, um, so it's really kind of random as to when you say the workable parts of Dianetics and Scientology, I go, well, you know, there's, there's, there's books and books and books and books. I mean, they, they, just, they just go on and on, and there's a lot of crap in there. And some of it might work for you, and most of it's not, <laughs> you know? And I don't even know where to begin to tell you what's going to work on you. And even then, the word work is kind of problematic, because again, are we talking about entering a euphoric state where you feel better, even though nothing really substantial has been done for you, or are we talking about cures? Because if you're looking for cures, none of this stuff is going to give you cures. None of this stuff is going to permanently take away, you know, pain, stress, and trauma that you're experiencing. It just doesn't work that way. So I guess that's a, a, a bit of a rant about the whole thing, I guess, or, or my sort of take on it. Um, you know, maybe I wish I had a more solid answer for you. You know, go to page 49 of Dianetics and that little process will work. But it doesn't really, I, I really wouldn't recommend or endorse any part of it. I would instead say, look, put all this stuff to the side. Just ignore it. Skip it. Go out into the world. Look at where medicine's at. Look at where healing is at. You know, go find something where nobody's trying to deceive you or over promise and under deliver. You don't want any of that. You want to approach these things with, uh, with a realistic, pragmatic, real practical world, you know, kind of view and have expectations low, you know, and stay the hell away from anything that is pseudoscientific, you know, stay away from Gwyneth Paltrow's crap and Deepak Chopra's crap and all this, this, this nonsense that these people are peddling. Unfortunately, you know, we're not in a great place in terms of being able to cure everything. So people thinking that they're feeling so much better as a result of, you know, some herb they took or some, you know, mantra they chanted. Well, that's nice that you feel better, but let's not call that curing something because that's not really what it, what that's about. So, okay. Anyway, there you go. Okay, now as far as how I met my wife, I'm going to do this real fast because it's really not a very exciting story. I met my wife at the Secular Hub here in Denver, which is a meetup group for atheists, humanists, skeptics, you know, kind of secular type minded people. And we first met there, but we didn't really, we weren't like hanging out or anything like that. This was a few years ago when I first moved here to Denver. I think it was five years ago. And then what ended up happening was she and I went have a mutual friend who was a comedian, and we went out with her one night separately. Like I, I, the, me and the comedian friend, uh, yeah, I'll go watch you do some open mics. And she also was going to see her friend do some open mics. So we were all hanging out. And then we started getting along. And then we started talking. And then we started talking more. And then we started going out. So that's pretty much how it happened. Like I said, not super exciting story, but it was certainly fun for me to <laughs> live through. So that's what happened there.
Jennifer, now with the coronavirus crisis and people not able to meet up, do you think Scientology and other cults as well will be able to keep their hold? How do you think they will keep up the indoctrination? Do you think a lot of people will leave their cults because they will have time to think about what they are doing? Or do you think they will double down? Thanks for the question, Jennifer. And I'm going to give you some guesses here and some, you know, supposition because I'm, of course, who knows what's really going to happen or how things are going to progress. I think that we're going to see a little uptick in people doubling down on belief for sure in times of desperation and extremism and, uh, you know, threats to survival. People definitely tend to go more spiritual, more doubling down, more looking to God or supernatural solutions. That's just, you know, historically what people do. Um, when it comes to not being able to meet up, though, see, that's a big deal. And I think that that actually is probably going to have more of a detrimental effect on religion as a whole across the United States. Because a big, huge part of the comfort and uh, peace of mind that religion brings is the comfort of collectiveness and going to a place where there are other people you, who are sympathetic to you, you're sympathetic to them, you're all on the same wavelength, you know, kind of thing. Everybody's agreeing, everybody's singing the same songs, feeling the same emotions. That's the thing that brings that feeling, those feelings of togetherness and collectiveness and make it real. And that doesn't, it's not the same thing, unfortunately, for many of us over the internet. It's a little bit the same, but it's really not exactly the same because that connection, that physical connection is not there. Um, and that's going to impede the ability of these groups to be able to, even when they do virtual meetups or virtual congregation meetings or, and of course some churches, many churches are flaunting those social distancing rules in our meeting anyway, specifically because they know that it requires continual reminding, continual indoctrination, if you will, to keep the beliefs current and, and in people's minds because these things tend to fall away. You know, you stop going to church, you become a lapsed Catholic, a lapsed Christian, a lapsed Jew, whatever, and it's not on your mind as much anymore. And you're not, you know, so you're not, because you're not having to think about it. People aren't telling you you're not going to a sermon, you're not reading your Bible. You're not reading your holy book, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. This isn't just with Christianity. This isn't just with Scientology. Scientology specifically now is particularly susceptible to this because keep in mind that Scientology is not a religion in the same sense as all these other groups that you think about in that Scientology is not about large group gatherings except when they're doing David Miscavige's briefings. That's that kind of large group briefing is very necessary for Scientology, and the fact that they won't have those for a few months is going to have a detrimental effect on the on the minds of the viewers of the, of the followers, because they're not going to be getting their indoctrination. They're not going to be getting those false statistics and expansion of Scientology and how great it's doing in the world, and they're not going to see world supposed world leaders talking grandly about Scientology, and they're not going to see any of that stuff. So that's going to impact on their on the, on the uh, ferventness of their belief. Um, but more importantly, much more importantly, both to Scientology's money model and to the indoctrination is the core activity of the Church of Scientology is auditing people. 
It's the one-on-one -on -one counseling. And that's where they make their money. They can make thousands of dollars an hour on an individual parishioner going to Clearwater and paying the big bucks for the big auditing there. And anywhere they go, they're making you know hundreds of dollars per hour on the on that auditing. So with social distancing and with people not being able to gather and not being able to go into the churches, I mean, they've even got now, they'll send the auditor to you. They'll send them out to your home as though that makes any damn sense right now. But that's what they're trying to do. Why? Because that's their money maker. If they can't deliver auditing, then they're not going to be making any money, at least not on services. And when that's not happening, then you know what else isn't happening? As I mentioned earlier, the euphoria the generation, right? The thing that keeps them coming back for more is that sense and feeling at the end of every auditing session that they've accomplished something amazing and they're in a spiritually better place. This is a temporary feeling. It's this euphoria. And when that dies down, then they want more auditing. They go get some more. And, um, or they feel like their life's in the doldrums and, and all of that. And there's a lot that can be said about this. There's a whole lot more about this, but I'm trying to keep it simple. So I'm just saying that um, Scientology can't do that as effectively right now. So, of course, they're going to have, if, as this continues over time, this could have a detrimental effect. It all depends on how long it's go the, these requirements are going to go on for. And since they're probably only going to be going on for a few more weeks or maybe a couple months at the most, you know, it's not going to be that big of a, of a detrimental effect. It's not like they're going to see any mass exodus because of this. Scientologists are not on that tight a line of indoctrination. They, you know, they can keep it up for quite a while without having to get mainline exposure to David Miscavige or to an auditing session. I'm just talking in general terms about how this business model kind of works, actually. So, you know, the, the continual contact and the reinforcement of the indoctrination is a necessary action for all these groups to actually keep their hold on people. And the more extreme the group is, the more and more necessary that personal contact is. So, that's what I can say about that, and I hope that was interesting. Blake Nestle. There's plenty to be critical of in Trump's handling of this coronavirus situation. The downplaying, the sacrifice of the time advantage in responding. But these racism accusations just look like grasping at straws. It's odd that it apparently needs to be pointed out that Chinese is a nationality, not an ethnicity, and anyone claiming one can be racist toward a nationality, not an ethnicity, clearly doesn't understand either concept. There was a point where the accusation of being racist once had true weight, but it has been thrown around so flippantly and incorrectly that it has diminished the significance that label was always supposed to carry, and this has been done by the very people who fancy themselves progressive. This is a microcosm of a phenomena that has been occurring throughout his presidency. There will be a laundry list of legitimate, deserved criticism to be made of the man, yet instead the media and the orange man bad crowd will latch onto something petty and ridiculous. A pandemic virus circumnavigates the globe to delay downplayed response, and we're going to go after the man in a game of semantics for political points. If a virus originated in America, in a town with a known viral research site, and then the American government suppressed and or jailed any and all whistleblowers till they recanted or died, 
All the while that government lied about the virus's severity to the world, would anyone hesitate to call it an American virus or be branded a racist as a result? Why is American media seemingly carrying water for an authoritarian government currently running the largest ethnic imprisonment since Hitler? This is so transparent and disingenuous, it is almost funny. Okay, Blake, thanks for this question, and I'm taking it up to point out a couple things. Um, I totally get where you're coming from, and I agree with you that the whole thing is not about racism. It is nationalism, and I said so every time I saw it being talked about. I told Melissa that right off the get-go. I was like, that's not racism, that's nationalism. But more to the point, it's actually what I've read, at least, by somebody who I trust, um, is that it was actually... The, the, the Wuhan virus and the Chinese virus and China virus and Trump calling it that and sort of playing with that, which he did, um, was it actually a GOP strategy specifically enacted to enrage the libs and make their heads explode and make people's heads explode who are anti-racist or are anti-nationalist even, right? Like, if you're not down with that, or you don't think that China deserves to be called out on that, or that the Chinese people specifically deserve to be, um, you know, prosecuted as Chinese people because of this thing. And most people who have two gray cells to rub together understand that individual Chinese people should not be assaulted, attacked, or even name-called, or in any way blamed for this. I mean, everybody kind of gets that. It's a stupid thing to say, to call this thing the Chinese virus, as the, it, it, to, to play on that sort of um, racist, anti-racist, nationalist, whatever card. It's, a, it's just the whole thing is kind of silly. But it was done on purpose as a, as a strategy point so that questions like yours could then be raised. And that's why I thought it was kind of funny that you asked it, because... It's playing to the strategy of, see, look at these stupid liberals and how their heads are exploding in the middle of a crisis, right? Well, that was done on purpose because that's how propaganda works. And I keep talking about this and I'm trying to point this out as another teaching moment that it's, you know, the thing about propaganda is that, that people seem to think it's always obvious, that it's so clear that you can see it so easily. No, it doesn't work like that at all. The best propaganda, the best mind control is the kind that you never saw coming and you never even were aware of any control happening at all. And that's how these things actually work, right? There's the obvious levels of stuff that we all talk about and get enraged about, but then there's the stuff that's going on right below that. If you know that a whole group of people the libs, let's say, have certain push buttons and you push those buttons, they're going to respond a certain way. And we do know that. Just like we know that if you push certain buttons on the right, boink, 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 you know, people at the outrage will come up. These are, these, they, they play people with this stuff, right? They now plan for that. When it's truly something that was unpredicted, when there are responses that happen to things that are uh, truly new and different, well, you can't predict that. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. But at this point, after years and years of this, as you point out, correctly so, that the word racist has been so overplayed 
and that you're right that the progressives, the deep, deep extreme progressives who have been playing this racist and sexist and misogynist and all these ist words that come out, if you watched my podcast with Dr. James Lindsay a few weeks ago, then you'll, and please do if you haven't, because this is why I did that interview, is to show how this kind of stuff works, because he and I kind of, he, he deconstructs it. Um, you see that these words are actually being redefined to, to in, a, in a sort of a postmodern milieu where it's all about power structures. It's not about an individual having an, uh, an irrational prejudice against somebody else because of their skin color, or because of where they're from, or because of what they look like. That's not really what the, how those words are being used anymore by the extreme left. And this is the source point for where the rest of the left is kind of getting, you know, what these words mean now and how they're being used. And they're being used in an anti-power structure sort of way, which is a sort of a corruption of what those words actually are all about. And that's why we're seeing this weird sort of use of these words and why it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but you kind of go along with it sometimes. Like what? You know, because who wants to not, you know, you don't, nobody wants to be a racist. Nobody wants to be a sexist. Nobody wants to be a misogynist. Um, nobody wants to be accused of these things, at least, in a public venue. That much is for sure. So, um, but yet these accusations fly around all over the place. Well, why? Well, because they're being redefined so that they can be thrown around at anybody at any time for almost any reason if those people are people who hold power of some kind. And these guys who are using those words want to chip away at or cut those, that, that, that power off in some fashion. That's kind of the direction it's gone in now. And that's, that's a behind-the-scenes thing. You can argue semantics all day long. That's the problem with it. That's the, that's the reason why it gets uh, infuriating, teeth-gnashing, upsetting. That's why there's conflict between people on the left with other people on the left is because they're not arguing the same concept back and forth with one another, even though they're using the same words. This is, goes back to my argument about religion. We have the word religion. It means three distinctly different things. But there's no way to differentiate which one of those three things you're talking about because you only use the word religion. You know, you have to talk personal religion, religious practice, and organized religion, right? Religious, personal religion or religious belief. That's one phase of religion. Religious practice, what you do with it, that's another aspect or, or, or part of religion. And then there is organized religion, groups of people getting together and doing religion. But since we use the word religion to describe all three of these things, people talk over each other all the time and get into arguments with each other all the time and get offended about the word religion. You're attacking my religion. How dare you? You're, you're stomping all over my religion. Well, which religion do you mean? <laughs> you know, like this is where the, the definitions of these words and the use of these words gets really important. And it causes all kinds of conflict. I think I've made my point. So, um, so this, is, this is why these labels do get overused, misused constantly. Um, but this is, you know, this is kind of the world that we're in right now. And it's kind of crazy, <laughs> you know. Um, so Blake... 
coming back to your question, yeah, you're right, the whole thing was stupid, but you know what? The whole thing was also generated by the GOP. So, what am I supposed to say about that? Except for what I just said, I don't know. And there you go. T.S. I've seen your videos where you explained about how promotions and stuff work in the Sea Org, and here are my questions. Are you aware of any U.S. military veterans that have served in the Sea Org? If so, do you recall ever hearing their thoughts or opinions on the Sea Org's paramilitary aspect? Are you aware of any online resources for studying the uniforms, ribbons, medals, badges, etc. of the Sea Org? I'm interested in comparing slash contrasting to the actual military and other paramilitary groups. How much formal training was there for Sea Org members in regards to the naval traditions? Did anyone teach recruits how to salute, how to iron a uniform, how to march, etc.? Or was it all more informal and absorbed through social osmosis? Did anyone actually care about those things being done right by people who'd been in for a while? Isn't it convenient that the uniforms of the Galactic Confederacy just happen to look so much like U.S. Navy uniforms instead of French, Russian, or Spanish Navy uniforms? Okay, um, so I'm going to uh, first t uh, send you to, uh, I think it's a little crit critical clip I posted on my Critical Clips channel. Uh, called Ranks in the Sea Org. It gives the graphic of all of the ranks and ratings, so you can go check that out. I'm throwing it on the screen here right now, so you can also see it uh, here if this will suffice for you, but I did a bit more of a breakdown in that video. Um, okay, did I ever talk to people who were vets who were also in the Sea Org? Yes, a couple times I did. They never really made any direct comparisons to life in the Sea Org except to say that it was rougher and tougher than the military ever was, which I found fascinating. I did not expect that at all. I, I had gone into the Sea Org thinking that the U.S. military was a rough, tough outfit and that, that, that things were very tight and crisp and, and that sort of thing, and I was dead wrong, apparently, according to the veterans I, who told me about their experience in the Marines. Uh, there was all kinds of slack time and people goofing off and, and all kinds of stuff that we never got away with in the Sea Org. Uh, the Sea Org is a 24-7 crisp snap and pop organization. There is no slack off time. Um, it's not just an eight hour a day job. And while I understand in the military you're on duty or potentially being called into duty 24-7, it's really more like a, an eight, you know, a nine to five job for many people on the bases at least. That's what I've heard. Don't shoot me if I'm wrong. Just, you know, correct me. I'm happy to get more information. That's just what I've heard. And when I was in the Sea Org, that's what they told me. Is They were like, yeah, this is this, this ain't like that at all. So, I don't know. You know, um, as far as uh, formal training, yes, there's a thing called the Estates Project Force. I've also done, a, I think, a clip on that, a critical clip on what is the Estates Project Force. Uh, otherwise, you can Google that, Estates Project Force, and you'll learn all about Sea Org's boot camp. And yes, that's where you learn to salute and march, and they do close order drilling, and we did a whole lot of that. I think I did more of that in the RPF, actually, than anywhere else. But there is an honor guard, there are people who get really into the, all that traditional kind of stuff. But at the same time, most of the maritime tradition is lost on people, you know, who are on land. Uh, if they're not on the free winds, on the actual ship that's sailing around, most Sea Org members wouldn't know, uh, you know, a main mast from a mizzen mast from the, you know, uh, anyway, I don't even know the terms. So they just wouldn't know this stuff, right? Uh, I don't. 
I, I make no claim of special knowledge about anything uh, connected with the Navy or the ocean or the sea as a result of my Sea Org time. You know, I have, a, I have a little bit of familiarity with some of the words connected with boats, and that's about it. I wouldn't know my way around a ship if you, you know, pointed a gun at me. So there isn't really a whole lot of that. Um, there's just some emphasis on the words of it and on the etiquette of being on the ocean and how there's manners and stuff. Like, for example, one of the rules in the Sea Org is if you're carrying stuff, and you're walking down a corridor, and even if a senior officer is walking towards you, he's the one who gets out of the way. You're the one with the burden. And if you're car if your man with the burden has the right of way. That kind of thing you would sort of see through the cult in the culture of the Sea Org, and it is written in the rules. So there are etiquette rules for the Sea Org based on naval tradition that Hubbard wrote, at least, and that's that's about as close as the Sea Org gets to that kind of thing. Peter. One observation I have from watching your videos and checking out related information is that often people join religious groups due to some very intense experiences, something which changes the way they look at the world and at spirituality. I also understand that at least some of these experiences can be created by normal methods, meaning methods that are understood by psychology and there's no need to rely on spirituality to explain them. For example, I am thinking about the high feelings Scientologists have doing the TRs. Another example is what Darren Brown demonstrated in his show, How to Convert an Atheist. I think in both cases, the receiver is convinced that something supernatural is happening, something that cannot be explained by science. As a result, they are receptive to the explanation offered and become a believer. Do you have any advice for where slash how to experience such an enlightenment safely? Personally, I would love to experience this myself. I also think this should be simply be part of public education. It should be part of the curriculum at schools. Kids should learn algebra, experience what it feels to sprint 100 meters, and experience how their own mind works. It should be available in community colleges. Heck, I think it should be part of traveling fun fairs. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, the thing about a euphoria or the high you're referring to there is it's really just we're talking about a rush of uh, neurotransmitters and uh, hormones in the system, in the body. And lots and lots and lots of things create that. Going to see a good movie cre can create that. Meeting the right person can create that. I mean, what do you think falling in love is? You know, these are all just uh, biochemical reactions to what's happening to external stimuli in the physical world. So there is no spirituality necessary for any of this, really, you know, because everything you're experiencing is processing here and throughout your body. That's the truth of it. You don't need a spiritual sense or something extra to make all of these sensations and feelings make sense. I'm not saying there isn't a spiritual existence. I'm not saying there isn't some force of will behind all of this that is not necessarily physical in nature. I can't speak to that one way or the other except to say it's a possibility that there's something supernatural there. But we don't need any of that to explain the sensation of this high feeling or this wonderful feeling or the joy of existence that many of us have experienced in our lives just due to having a great time, a lot of fun, an amazing drug trip, uh, falling in love, getting the promotion, 
you know, going and seeing a movie or listening to a concert or going to, you know, like, a, like an orchestra or something or seeing anything that inspires and enriches you. That, that's what creates that kind of feeling. So when you ask me, what can we do to safely reproduce that? I say life. Go live life and really live it. When you are in the moment, your senses are tuned to what's happening around you. You don't know what's going to necessarily happen next. That's a really big part of it, by the way, because your brain can't predict what's going to happen next. That's the thing that makes these experiences feel so new and different and exciting is you're not able to predict what's going to happen next. If you're in a predictable environment, it's kind of boring, right? It's when it's unpredictable and safe, you're in a safe environment, that you can experience these amazing, wonderful, great things. So I say, go do it, man. Go live life that way or find things that enrich your life that way and cause you to personally feel, woo, you know, that's what's going to cause that. And you can uh, experience that solo. You can experience that in groups. You can experience that through a television or a movie or headphones, or you can go out in life and live it and experience it that way. I know right now we're all a little limited in how much we can go out and experience life, but life is still happening around us all the time, and, um, and it's really just a matter of what attitude we approach it with and what activities we engage in to enrich our life that give us meaning and purpose and direction. So that's my stumpy soapbox, whatever, about that. But that's how I, that's how I see it. And I hope that um, that enables people to maybe see pathways to, you know, some fun <laughs> out there uh, in these otherwise kind of trying times that we're living right now. Okay, everybody, so we did not have flash answers this week because as I might, as you might know, I kind of lost the last seven months of stuff on my computer last weekend through completely complete stupidity on my part. I, I get to this. This wasn't the Church of Scientology on this one. This was me. I, uh, I I let my security down, and I had a virus come on my computer, and it wiped some stuff. And I had backups, but I didn't have backups for the last seven months. So I'm reconstructing all of that now. So far, it's been going great. I did lose some of your questions, so if you've sent me questions that I have not answered in the last few months, go ahead and send them to me again because I'm sorry that I'm I'm sorry I lost them. Uh, and. Um, so I also need more flash answers because <laughs> okay, I don't have enough to answer. I always want to do at least three per episode. All right. That all being said, thanks very much for coming around. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope that it is entertaining, informative, and educational enough that you will consider continuing your support for me or newly supporting me on Patreon because that is what keeps my existence going and allows me to keep these lights on, this camera going, and talking to you guys. All right, I will see you soon. Thanks for coming around. Bye-bye.